Welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. This is episode number two, entitled My Road into Jerusalem, and it is the title of the preface of my book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle-Earth. In today's episode, I am pleased to announce that I was interviewed by my best friend and wife, Sarah Jahoski, where she asks me about, among other things, the preface of my book and why I wrote the book, what makes my book distinct from other works about Tolkien and his faith, his Christian faith, and of course my personal road into Jerusalem. Now for those of you that don't know uh, where the origin, uh, the origin of this phrase, it comes from one of C.S. Lewis's essays entitled Christianity and Culture. And he talks about the role that uh, culture may or may not play in pushing a person toward or away from Jesus and uh, discipleship with Jesus. And so I, I kind of adopted that as the title of the preface of my book because it's a personal introduction to how I came to write the book, who it's for, why I wrote it, and what my personal investment in the subject matter is. So if you're looking for kind of a heart-to-heart -heart with the author, that's where to go to find it, in the preface. So um, among other things that we talk about in this episode, it's uh, sort of the origin of how I uh, were, it was introduced to the writings of Tolkien, uh, how I became a Christian, sort of a roller coaster, tumultuous journey uh, there, and how my conversion process to becoming a Christian was very gradual and disclosed in chunks to me from God, from the Holy Spirit, I feel. So we kind of get into that. And we also get into what makes my book distinct and unique, uh, set apart from the other works, uh, the many, many, many books on Tolkien and his Christian faith and his writings, the relationship to his writings. And Sarah did a fantastic job coming up with some great questions that gives you sort of a, an introduction, not only to my book and why I wrote it, uh, but sort of the personal investment, but she also asks me some questions about future plans that we have here for the podcast, our podcast, Mythic Mission, that Sarah's going to be contributing to as well. So if you're looking for a more of a personal introduction to both my book and our ministry here through Mythic Mission, then please take a listen to this episode number two. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. Oh, hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I've watched enough of your podcast now to know the first thing I should do is say thank you for having me on. We <laughs> <laughs> appreciate everyone listening. Um, this is my first time doing a podcast, but I'm very excited. Yeah, okay. it's it's easy to do. You just be your lovely self. So we're we're really just kind of having a conversation. We don't want this to sound too formal. And uh, Sarah and I wanted to do something personal that um, got a chance to feature us, but also that. Um, touches on the personal aspect of my book, which is the preface is usually the appropriate place in an academic book for that sort of thing. So I think that's what she's got, um, you know, set up for us tonight. So yeah, I wanted to say that um, I know in a lot of the podcasts that you've done already, you've talked about your book and the thesis of your book, and you've gone through some important points. I know with the Michael Heiser podcast, you went through each chapter. And I know we had talked about just focusing kind of on your preface, more of like your personal testimony um, mm -hmm. and kind of diving deep into the why behind you, why you did this and just some key concepts you want to talk about. So I prepared some questions, um, some things that I already know, but other things that, you know, I could always learn more about, but we want listeners to get to know you as the author a little bit better and your personal journey, or as you call it in your preface, your road into Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. The first question I have is about your encounter with Lord of the Rings. So um, your first, very first encounter, you talk about it in your preface when the Lord of the Rings comes into your life. 
was it that you read the books first or did you see the movies first? What kind of got you into Lord of the Rings? Yeah. So Sarah, by the way, you've written some really fantastic questions. So uh, for those of you that don't know, Sarah did a little stint in a, a semester with journalism at University of Florida. Was it a semester? Like two years, actually. Oh, oh God. Okay. <laughs> a little rusty on that. So that's what I said. Right? I only said one that. semester on reporting where I had to uh, write questions. So technically okay, only one that's semester what I, writing questions. <laughs> you saved me. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. So, um, aside from just being a, a bright and uh, wise uh, woman, she's um, a good uh, uh, framer of questions, which I always have a hard time doing when I'm building stuff for my class. So Sarah always helps build the syllabi and uh, assignments for the classes. So uh, this question obviously is probably closest to me and we'll just start simply. So uh, great question. You know, I kind of discovered the books in the months before. I can't remember if it was the summer or the fall of 2001. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring came out in December of 2001, I think it was. And oh my God, it's been 20 years, so, or will be soon. Um, so Chris, my brother, and I, um, Chris, I think, um, got the Fellowship in paperback from Barnes & Noble, and we were living in Cocoa Beach, um, and I forget all the circumstances, but he came over one night and started reading. I had played like a, I think a, a, a maybe it was a board game. Maybe I think Chris might have introduced. I remember because I can remember the closet I had in high school and uh, up there on the ledge. I think there was a one of the first and earliest Lord of the Rings like card or board games. And I think he got me into that too. That's kind of coming back to me now. And uh, whether that came first or the book came first, he read the book. We read through, I know, at least a couple of chapters. I remember um, not knowing what happened to Gandalf and we were reading through them. And I think um, by the um, third movie in 2003, I did have all the books read, but it took some time to complete them. And then I devoured The Hobbit and The Silmarillion in the years after that. So sorry about that non-academic slip there, but it, it, it happens, you know, so that's okay. Uh, sorry, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so, um, but you know, in, in truth, it was probably uh, the wording he would have chosen at the time because I, I really um, was pestering him about it. I was so excited. I wanted to find out what what had happened to Gandalf. So that was kind of how I remember it. Um, and so it was kind of, course, of a simultaneous, yeah. like a kind of a simultaneous, like kind of what happened with us with Harry Potter. Would you yes, say? Exactly. Yeah. We covered mm -hmm. the movies, but then the books kind of around the same time. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think um, when we saw the Order of the Phoenix um, in which was book five, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and movie five, obviously. And then they did the two with the seventh book. But I think when we saw Order of the Phoenix, it was in Gainesville with Ashay, if you remember. Uh, so if she's out there listening, hi, Ashay. Um, and uh, we had ordered like the, I think, yeah, we were reading through the books and seeing the movies at the same time. So it was kind of like that. Um, I can't remember with Harry Potter, but anyway, yes, that, that's, that's pretty right. right. I'm pretty sure Kelly was with us too. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly was with us. That's Kelly right. Had read the books and, and got us into it. it was right. like, yeah, read the books. It's so much better than the movie. So thank you. Yeah. Kelly. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. And I think uh, Deathly Hollows had come out not, did that come out while the movies were, I can't remember, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was similar to that. Um, which is another series of books we'll be talking about on the podcast eventually. So that's something to look forward to. So, okay. So then kind of leading off of that question, you know, with reading the books and the movies kind of simultaneously, when you think back to that time, what would you say really captivated you most about the story or what was, what was it that, that really got your attention about it? That just kind of was like, Oh, 
like I need to know more. I need to read. I need to watch the movie again. Or, you know, what was yeah. the most captivating thing about it? I think, so I remember, and I don't know if it was, um, was it John, I'm trying to remember the name of the artist. Uh, John Howe, I think, was one of the artists. I, I remember looking at the cover of the Fellowship of the Ring that Chris had, and it was one of the, the famous Tolkien artists. I think it might have been Howe, John Howe, I think his name is. Um, and listening to it and just being transported and wanting to have real life kind of feel that urgent and that adventurous. Um, and, you know, Tolkien uh, really describes this really well, uh, just to kind of jump back to The Hobbit, which I read later, of course, but, uh, you know, when Bilbo is listening to the dwarves saying any, you know, Tolkien describes the world outside and the, um, you know, thoughts that Bilbo was having. And that's kind of how I felt when I first encountered it. It was a sense of realism and urgency. And I write about that throughout my book. Uh, and of course, at that time, I didn't make sense of how that could be possible, but I kind of just knew, um, and this is why I got into the video games and the board games and the card games, just because I wanted to immerse myself in as much Middle Earth as possible because I felt that it was real and I felt that it was urgent, like it, life needed to feel this way. Mm -hmm. And I remember years later um, reading Peter Kreft's book, The Philosophy of Tolkien, the uh, Christian worldview behind the Lord of the Rings, which is an excellent book. And I remember him saying something along these lines and I quote him somewhere in the book that, you know, there's a reason why we love Tolkien. And this is one of the things that I feel like he unpacked for me and then I built on in my book to try to explain why it feels real. It was almost like starting then, it was this quest that I had to explain to other people what the book was doing to me so that other people who I know have had the same experience would now understand how it how it's affecting them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think it's like such a captivating story to begin with when you mentioned The Hobbit, just for everyone listening. So Mike just started recently reading The Hobbit to both of our children who are almost four and almost seven. And I don't think I've ever seen them listen more intently to a story than they are with with the hobbit so i just think it's it's you know um interesting to see them kind of traversing this journey so early and and, and finding such interest in it i can't wait to see where that takes them too oh, yeah. lucas tonight too was um really on top of it because we were out of the frying pan and into the fire chapter six i think it is in the hobbit and uh, there was a point where Tolkien says, you know, and then the Hobbit heard voices. He was looking for the dwarves and Gandalf. He was wondering if he should go back into the goblin tunnels. And and I go, Lucas, who are those voices that he thinks he hears? And he's like, it's Gandalf and the dwarves. I mean, he's totally into it. Yeah, he and, is. Uh, he's not even seven. I mean, and it took me until I was almost, um, well, I, I guess I was 15, 16. Yeah. Uh, in the fall, uh, winter, 2001, when, when I discovered these books. So, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. I think we're drawn as humans just to the sense of adventure. We're, we're very much drawn to what The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is all about, which we yes. can talk about later. Yes. Um, yes. But so in your preface, you talk about how, um, you know, you had grown up a Catholic and then kind of strayed from Christianity or a cradle Catholic, and then you um, returned to Christianity. So what made you consider returning to Christianity? Was it the Lord of the Rings at the time? Or is it something now you look back and think, was there, what was kind of the path, your journey back to Christianity? Yeah, my road into Jerusalem, which is uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has an, an essay called, um, what was it? Uh, Christianity and Culture. And in, in uh, 
one of the essay compendium books uh, that you can get today on C.S. Lewis. And that, that was his phrase. Anyway, we'll get to that. But that's what that means, you know, your journey to Christ. That's what he meant by that. And in the essay, he's talking about how culture at large, you know, things that are kind of not necessarily square inside the sacred tradition can be somebody's road into Jerusalem, but it can also be like, oh man, I don't want anything to do with that. It can be our road out of Jerusalem as well. We can see things in culture that make us run from the church uh, and run towards it and run run towards Jesus, excuse me, more importantly. So um, a lot of things I write about in my book. So a couple of things happen. I'm sorry, I keep rubbing myself because I'm freezing up here. It got real cold all of a sudden. Um, so if, I'm, if I seem like I'm trembling at some point, it's like, whoo, got so cold. Um, a couple of things happened at this at this time. So I had just turned 16, right, uh, 2001, and uh, you know started reading the books. And I think just the year before that, and and I might be getting the timeline overlapping, but 15, 16, my mom uh, had become a Christian again, not too long before that, um, taking a renewed interest and not in specific Catholicism. So really, mom, you know, you you know this already, your zeal to understand the Bible and to apply it to your life. And I know we were both baby Christians again at that time and weren't listening to the best preachers uh, as we would later find out. Uh, but um, we were we were trying and we didn't really have any guides to really kind of point us on the way. So, you know, that was really kind of what did it for me. And I just remember kind of silently telling Jesus that, you know, I'm going to try to understand it better, but I, and I did read the Bible. I was the prayer guy on the basketball team in high school. So, you know, I, I was studying, I was reading the Bible, but I didn't understand really what it was all about. I just thought, you know, you read a verse and it's got power. And, and that was part of the spell we were under with Joyce Meyer and some of the other, you know, for the little good, I think that's there, um, that the rest of it is really quite negative, unfortunately, with the prosperity gospel. But um, I had a very almost superstitious view of it. And and that, uh, for those of you that don't know, I'll share a personal note, probably is a good place to also mention, you know, I was kind of coming away from, um, and mom will remember this, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but uh, being addicted to online psychics at the time and dabbling in things that just to try to understand things, to short circuit and go around God and, um really was interested in the occult, but as a, as a kid, I didn't know that. Uh, no excuse, but, um, you know, this was really quite powerful, but I think I brought some of that mentality with me, and I don't say this in the book for space purposes, but, you know, that was another detail, and I think um, that really kind of affected my mindset with reading the Bible and understanding it. Now, setting that aside, um, at the same time, as I already said, I discovered Lord of the Rings through Chris reading it to me, and then I, you know, picked it up on my own, um, but I didn't see them as related. Okay, so it took until all the way until 2010 and 11 for me to start looking back on 2001, a decade, to start realizing what was going on with that connection. So I think it's just very providential that those two things happened. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I didn't plan it that way, but it's uh, amazing that God kind of put those things in my life and then said, here, help me connect the dots together. And then 10 years later, we'll, we'll get into that later. But right. Well, it's um, funny that you mentioned because you pretty much answered my next two questions because oh. I, I had asked, did you see a connection between Lord of the Rings and Christianity at first, which you just said you didn't see the connection until years later. And also I said, how long before you discovered the connection? And you just told us that about five or yeah. six years later, you yeah. discovered kind of the connection mm -hmm. um, between the two. Um, but I, I want to talk uh, it's still in the so same realm of Lord of the Rings, but just the, the concept of myth, you talk a lot about 
what myth is. And I know that in last week's podcast with Dr. Marcos, you guys went into um, the concept of myth and how it's been misunderstood over the years. And um, so I'm curious, I know if, if anyone hadn't, hasn't listened to that podcast yet, you talk about how, you know, we think in modern, in the modern sense of myth, we think something that's not true. So a lot of times you think Greek and Roman myths, well, they're not true. They're just hyperbolized, exaggerated stories of these gods and goddesses. Um, And, and it tries, it was the way that ancient cultures tried to make sense of their world and how things happen and why things happen. And so when we hear, when we say, oh, that's just a myth, we think that's not true, but you talk about in your book and you've, and and many scholars that um, you've researched and included their research as well about that. We actually have that meaning of myth is not correct. So can you first briefly describe for us what the actual meaning of myth is? And then can you also um, talk about when you actually uncovered the true meaning? Yeah, great question. So um, let me tell you a story and this will answer, you know, so um, in the uh, starting in the 18th century, you have um, a lot of people in the philosophical world who are um, increasingly, in fact, really, there's not a perfect place to start the story, but maybe even back in the 16th century, and there are several nodes we could connect, but uh, shortly after the Renaissance, and you have the emergence of this view that uh, r- the mind uh, is a is a um, in possession of a, a rational uh, faculty, the, the power of reason, and that our senses uh, really could be uh, very trustworthy and, and tell us all the data that we need to know about life, and that we need to filter that through the faculty of reason, and that between our senses and reason, John Locke especially was a huge proponent of this way of thinking. Um, and we can understand all of life's uh, you know, mysteries and that we need to rely heavily on uh, proven uh, empirical methods of observation and data gathering. And uh, this became one of the ways of doing science. And so this increasing reliance on the mind of reason, the, the faculty, the part of the mind that, that harnesses the power of reason uh, our senses. Uh, this is a, an, an ism known as empiricism. Um, the reliance on reason alone is rationalism. And then finally, something that eventually emerged, this this obsession with science being able to, to be the only arbiter of truth uh, about the world we live in is called scientism. And as this narrative built in Europe, especially with uh, the French Revolution, and you have thinkers who were very disenchanted with religion, and you have that also in our American Revolution, Um, Among other historical and cultural moments I could point to, um, we started to rely on this understanding of truth, which is a statement about factuality, but truth is only knowable through those those faculties of reason, the senses, and the sciences, and the scientific methods that help us arrive at that data. So truth is what we could prove those ways. And that would mean, of course, that truth and factuality are in fact the same thing, that the world we live in is a scientific, sensual, uh, and uh, empirically observable world and uh, a rational world that uh, can be understood through these avenues. And let me just stop right there. I didn't really tell this myth so eloquently. There's just so many things one would want to say, but the whole point is that I've just told you a story and I could point to many other philosophers uh, in different time periods. You can go back to ancient um, third um, century BC and look at Epicurus and uh, look at Zeno in the fourth century before him and these Hellenistic philosophers, even thousands of years before the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. So see, I told you, you, know, you can go to different nodes here in history 
who were telling the same narrative. Epicurus's God was far away, um, you know, uninterested in human affairs. And of course, that was brought on by his disenchantment with the Olympian gods. Now, I don't blame him. And I think his view was uh, far better than the Olympian view. However, the one thing he lacked is that he lost his imagination. He lost the ability to think mythically. When we discarded the Olympian gods with all their capriciousness and cruelty, and you go to just a, a mind of pure reason and, and the senses and, and the, uh, you know, the budding sciences at the time, we're back in ancient Greece, remember, um, you, you lose so much. You, you atrophy the imagination, among other things. Okay, so these stories, whether we're talking about the ancient Greek version or the pre-modern, uh, I'm sorry, early modern story, that's just the thing. These are, these are myths. So that leads us to our definition. Myth is story. Okay, mythos is a narrative about the way things are. Okay, and scholars like uh, Alistair McGrath today are saying that mythos um, really was understood back in the time of Homer and Hesiod before it became changed by Plato and the Epicureans that I just mentioned, um, was a, a narrated explanation about the way the world works. And that obviously contains a multitude of truths in it, but not all truth is literal or scientific or knowable through the senses. There's poetic truth and truth through metaphor and analogy and parable and so on and so forth. So myth is a, is a storied explanation about the world. It, it is a story about reality. And um, when we understand that reality can be uh, apprehended by the imagination, as well as through the mind of reason, and that reason cannot do its thing without imagination, we realize that truth is also expanded, just as reality is expanded to be um, something that is not just literal, but there's such a thing as non-literal truth. So we're so accustomed to buying into the modern myth that we've forgotten the real meaning of myth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the simplest way I can put it. And you talked um, with Dr. Marcos about the, the word mythology being mm -hmm. and logos together. That Yes, I can comment briefly. So mythos and logos originally meant something very similar. You know, they're both accounts. It can just mean an account of something. Uh, logos carries with it kind of a rational account and mythos is kind of like a, an utterance, uh, a dark saying, a proverb, a, a simile, an analogy, a parable, an allegory. Um, really at the heart of this is a poetic utterance. And um, it, it is itself a poetic utterance about the way the world works. And, and generally, of course, it's a comment on the gods or the, the inner workings of man or woman. And of course, those we usually resort to metaphor to really plumb those mysteries of being human. But the common denominator is that mythos and logos are both statements about fact, i.e. reality. And therefore, they're both truth statements. They're just not true in the same way, but they are truth. And we've become so unaccustomed to thinking this way that we've invented a new myth, which is so ironic, as I'm hoping you're seeing, that that eradicates the real myth. And so it's just it's just hilarious how we've done this to ourselves. And this is something I'll comment on later. But Nietzsche saw this in the 19th century, and uh, he was one of his greatest critiques. Friedrich Nietzsche, um, you know, German philosopher. Uh, and uh, so-called uh, dynamite man, as he called himself, I am dynamite, uh, among other things, an antichrist for some people, you know, he said that, and this was a good thing that he said, is that we had murdered myth, we had killed myth, and uh, we also said we murdered God, but that's another story for another time. Um, anyway, so that's good for now, I think, on myth. So I agree. So, um, so hopefully that's clarified for many people out there who maybe had that misunderstanding still. So why do you think then it's important for us 
today to rediscover what myth really is. I think y'all sometimes, I mean, you, you know better than, than I do with your students. You know, sometimes it'll be like, who cares about myth anymore? So why do you think that's important for us to actually rediscover what myth really is today? Well, as I've just, great question, um, as I've just demonstrated too, you know, that we can't live without myth. We can't live, we can't not live in a, uh, we can't not have a worldview and therefore we can't not have a, or therefore we cannot have a, a non-storied explanation about the way the world works. And I forgot to say that mythos and logos together forming this word mytho, mythologia, right, or mythology, um, one of the conjugations of the word, um, it means both views of truth i.e. about reality together, right? Which is a, a really a unified way of looking at the world that we've forgotten on how to do. And that's kind of an answer to your next question. We've forgotten how to dissolve that difference between subject and object, even between heaven and earth, because we don't think in a unified sense anymore. And I wanna comment on the theological implications of this later um, that not everybody will agree with, of course. Excuse me, but um, what I mean is, um, that it's very important that we become mythical thinkers again. And Charlie Starr, who's coming on the show next week, uh, who's written a great book about C.S. Lewis and myth, he, he says something like this. He says, man is not a myth. And that is a sad, sad fact. And that's exactly what Nietzsche said, is that modern man had killed myth. We had atrophied the imagination and relied so much on what he called the Apollonian side, the illusory side, uh, the coping side of being human that we would create these regional, reasonable narratives and live within these, um, you know, uh, behind these walls that we create for ourselves, but wouldn't embrace the Dionysian aspects, the mythical frenzied aspects of life. And we had kind of cordoned ourselves off from mythos. And Nietzsche was right about that. Um, man, uh, and I mean, of course, in general here, uh, human beings cannot live without mythos uh, in their lives. And so, What's important is this, this idea of not demythologizing, but remythologizing, which is putting the transcendence, putting the mythical quality, the idea that truth is more than just literal, that reality is more than just literal, and that the, the idea that reality is just literal is itself a myth. So you're already living inside a myth. You're just living inside a, um, uh, a lobotomized, um, uh, half-baked one that, that isn't really fully honest about itself and it can't live up to its own standards. So, you know, realize the lie you're living in. This is what C.S. Lewis was convinced by J.R.R. Tolkien to realize, I talk about it in my introduction, that he was living inside this rationalist, empiricist, uh, or empirical uh, storyline, which itself was a mythos. And so he just thought that was so funny uh, and and yet so important that we recognize that. And so that's why I think it's important. And we, we need to be more honest that if you're going to take the view as a, as a rationalist and re rely on reason alone, reason can't appeal to reason. If you think you're just living in a physical universe with four walls and a roof, you wouldn't be able to know that unless you've seen from outside the four walls. You can't tell me I'm living in a box unless you know that we're not. So right, right there, it kind of just tells you we need to we need to be re-mythologized. We need to be re-enchanted, as Paul Gould and others are saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people are just not answering this impulse that stirred in them with through images and film and literature and music uh, and relationships. And, and they're 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 suffocating it. Lewis says this in one of his famous essays. You know, he says we take revenge on this feeling. We call it romanticism or nostalgia. We try to say, oh no no, you know, that's just me being adolescent again. Lewis mm -hmm. says. Uh, but it's a longing for our true country, and we have to we have to listen to it.
Yeah, actually, I was just going to mention with as parents now and seeing how how the imagination is such a, um, you know, huge part of both of our kids and just kids in general, you know, everyone always says kids have such a great imagination. And it's almost like as kids grow up, we kind of stifle their imagination. It's more, it becomes more about teaching them be reasonable, you know, and, and in a sense as adults, I feel like there's so much we can learn from kids that, that they can teach us. And I think it's, um, you know, that feeling of nostalgia, a lot of times it's thinking back to your childhood or thinking back to memories about, Oh, that was the good old days, you know, um, when we were enchanted. And I think the fact that you want to show adults that, that we can be re-mythologized and re-enchanted. And, and um, I just think that um, it's really a really great thing for people to be aware of and to know that you don't have to put aside, um, you know, childish things like Paul says, but, but what's that quote from C.S. Lewis? It says, um, I, when I grew up, I put aside childish things, including the fear of being childish. And what by childish, he meant, he was just playing on the the verse, but he meant, to put away being childlike, we should never do that. Right. And and, and I want to say, Sarah, too, this is an you know comment on this excellent uh, topic here. Reason cannot rely w uh, on itself; it, it has to appeal to the imagination. So many scholars, like Charlie Starr and Michael Ward and many others, Holly Wardway, have written books that say, "Look, it's important we understand what the imagination is." Paul Gould wrote a whole chapter on this in his Cultural Apologetics book that um, the imagination is the intermediary between our senses and the faculty of reason. And that having, imagining that we can rely on logos alone is like having a tree that's floating in midair without a root system, without a trunk, you know, which is imagination. You can't live without your imagination. Mm -hmm. And Tolkien and Lewis both understood this. And on fairy stories, Tolkien's excellent essay on that same subject, he writes that, uh, and in his letters too, I'm delighted to know that my um, telling of fairy stories is not just for children, because he didn't write it just for kids. The Hobbit is not just for kids, neither is especially the Lord of the Rings, um, and it's it's for um, it's for for big kids who need to be re-enchanted. And then you were probably also thinking, I know knowing you, because I know you love this uh, analogy that Lewis uses about the bicycle and his uh, learning to ride a bicycle essay, something along those lines. He, um, and I got, I learned this first from Gould's book because we did that church class on cultural apologetics and I loved it. I fell in love with the analogy that Lewis gives. Um, you know, we grow up first as kids, we're unenchanted as young kids and then we're enchanted with the bicycle. We learn to ride it. Uh, and then we become disenchanted. We no longer go back to it. And then there's this need to become re-enchanted again. And we're so many of us are in that between that third and that fourth stage of learning to ride a bike. And we need to make make the transition. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned how the stirrings that we feel as adults when we're reading great pieces of literature, or watching great films, or looking at good pieces of art, music, all the different things that kind of stir our imagination. So. Mm -hmm. This is bringing the Lord of the Rings back into this and, and other literature. And I know you'd wanted to talk about it a little bit. So how does the Lord of the Rings factor into all of this? Yeah, well, so, um, well, there's so much to say here, but, you know, I unpack the complicated uh, relationship between these very poly, uh, polyvalent or, you know, I would say multivalent terms have multiple meetings uh, like fairy story and myth and parable and allegory. And so I'll leave it to readers to look into chapter one for this, but the simplest way I can put it is whatever we end up calling the type of story that Lord of the Rings is, whether we say it's a parable, 
whether we say it's an allegory or that one of these can also be called a fairy story, which it certainly is at least that, uh, and th therefore that fairy story may be similar to either allegory or parable. So whatever we settle on calling it, what was more important to Tolkien is how it affects us and how the story is to be properly received. And it's first and foremost as a story. And so I would first say, getting that technical stuff out of the way, that it's important to understand that this is a myth. Okay. And now most people are going to hear that and say, right, right. Yeah. It's not true. No, no, no. Um, it's more true. Okay. It's more true. It, it shows us the world the way it should be. That's what fairy is. Uh, F-A-E-R-I-E. Fairy. The world of fairy is the world enchanted. It's the world of elves and men, Tolkien says, just differently perceived. This is a direct quote from his essay on fairy stories. And um, it is uh, the Lord of the Rings is a subset uh, of mythos, right? But mythos is a very general term. And now Tolkien um, says that in one of his letters, he says, my passion was for myth uh, and fairy story or fairy tale, not allegory, not the conscious and intentional one. Again, I'm not going to get into that too much. I know you have a question about the parables later, but so maybe I'll touch on it again. But I think what the, how this figures into it, of course, is that we need to receive the Lord of the Rings first and foremost as an aesthetic object. It is a work of art. And we need when we look at any great work of art, we need to, um, and remember, I haven't written this book until 2020. I mean, I began it in 2014, um, technically 2012, when the Hobbit movies came out. And remember, um, I would sit at the table on our bay window in our old house, and I would type up notes, just ruminations and reflections on the books and the movies. And those journal notes became notes. And then it became a conference paper in 2015. So I've been writing this book and that was a decade plus after my first encounter. Well, all that time I had been annually reading the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and the Hobbit increasingly more uh, times a year, actually, not just once a year and immersing myself into it. And, and that's the, the process that we should take. We should give the, the work, um, the works, the books, the myths, a chance to work on us first, mm -hmm. uh, to feel the longing that comes through them, right? Mm -hmm. And then to reflect on it and say, how is, how is that affecting me? What's going on? What's happening to me? Because it's going to do that. Any great story is going to. And of course, Tolkien understood that at some point, no literature is self-interpreting. So you're going to want to reflect about it. But when we do that, we just want to be very careful um, we want to be respectful of the author's intentions where we can. We want to be careful of it as an aesthetic object, uh, but we don't want to not think about it. We don't want to not analyze it because we want to know how it's affecting us. So it's a very delicate tightrope to walk. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, so I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I should wait to, to ask this question later, but yeah. maybe no. Um, I trust so you these concepts that, that we talk about myth and imagination and and stories literature parables all of these concepts that you talk about in your book i know here at mythic mission one of the things you you want to do is is be able to help christians um apologists be able to um preach the gospel and share jesus through myth through stories so so right. how how would you suggest um somebody who you know, as a Christian wants to share uh, this news with others, how would you suggest using literature? I mean, I know you said the, let the literature work on the person first, but um, how would you suggest, you know, starting a conversation about this with somebody or, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I, 
I do. I do. It's an excellent question. Uh, yeah. So I think it, it, it is a good thing to do. And I know that people are looking for these practical ways. Um, and I'm not faulting you for this. I was asked this on several interviews in the last six months or uh, almost six months. What, what's, what's it been? Four or five months? September, October, November. Yeah. Okay. So however long it's been a couple last couple months, I've just been doing interviews and this, this question came up a lot. So, um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it, but um, what I would recommend first for anybody is that you need to understand the gospel as story. And I, I want to recommend some books here for our listeners. Um, Charlie Starr's book, uh, The Fawn's Bookshelf, which talks about myth and meaning and truth and reality and all these concepts and literature a little bit in the writings of C.S. Lewis. I would say that Christians need to prepare themselves first to understand worldview and myth as being intertwined concepts, religion and myth. That, that is that every religion out there, Buddhism, Islam, secular humanism, all of them, they all tell a story. So get to know each of those stories. Uh, you can study a book by Alistair E. McGrath, like Narrative Apologetics, which he's got. Um, he's got a book on C.S. Lewis, uh, the intellectual life of C.S. Lewis that talks about the history of myth and the importance of um, understanding myth as it pertains to apologetics. Um, I would say Holly Ordway's book on, um, oh God, it was the, the title, uh, is it the, it's going to bother me until I look at it, um, I'll look it up here, want to make sure I get the title right for our listeners, she has a new book on Tolkien coming out, but it's apologetics in the Christian imagination and integrated approach, these are the kinds of books you need to study, because it may be that first of all, the word myth is still turning you off in, in that modern sense. So you need to kind of unteach yourself that. Um, we need to understand the relationship between um, myth and literature and the incarnation and how we need to be presenting the Christian faith, which is all about God becoming flesh, among other things, but God becoming a person. We need to understand the integral, uh, integral um, and, and crucial importance that story, myth has related to the incarnation that our mission needs to be incarnational our mission needs to be mythical and those two two ways of saying the same thing so i think study is important here i'm trying to think of some other books that would be really helpful for readers uh well readers i guess for the those of you that follow our blog on the wordpress but listeners watchers um alistair e mcgrath also has another book uh about um c.s lewis and the importance of story if i had lunch with c.s lewis uh, I mentioned Holly Ordway, um, Karen Armstrong, although I don't agree with her theology, really, um, A Short History of Myth is a great book, A Primer on Mythology. I think these are some great places to start and uh, understanding first the relationship of all these terms, okay? And you need to understand how we are to analyze and discuss religions and the things they teach um, and what story has to do with that and seeing them as competing narratives, trying to tell a better story about the world and to get away from this desire to prove which one is more rationally true. Because if you believe in revelation, then you believe that God is going to have that final say. And our job is to set the Holy Spirit up to do his work um, and to, to just tell a better story. Okay, I know um, Joshua Chatra also has a, a book out about telling a better story. I, I don't own it, but I've seen it. There are a lot of people out there writing books about this, okay? And I have written a book about it. So um, first, just kind of understanding that is really important. And then and only then can you really kind of go into a book as complex like Lord of the Rings and do what I was about to do, prepared to do, maybe I'll do it later, 
is to give you some examples about how to start a conversation. Okay, because you're trying to ultimately show how this story, and especially as a story, is related to the gospel and the gospel as a story, and that we need to inhabit that story and see that our lives make better comparative sense than they do in other stories. Okay, and there are there are elements and, and narrative plot points inside the Lord of the Rings and his other books um, that I would point to that would help you do this. But then I would also simply say Peter Kreft had the most, I think, remarkable way of putting it, and that is, ask the question, do you love Lord of the Rings? And if you find somebody that does, and there are plenty of people that do, well, then you unconsciously, whether you know it or not, love the Christian story. And start that as a conversation starter. But to do that, you need to know the Lord of the Rings well, but more importantly, you need to know your scripture, you need to know your Christianity well. And so also primers on apologetics. Apologetics, folks, is not just learning how to defend your faith. Um, I just saw an excellent video by one of, um, uh, I think it was Natasha Crane, who put out a video, Sarah, I think I showed it to you about, um, or I told you about it. She talked about apologetics is not just about defending your faith, but is about learning about your faith. So you need to do that. And, and, and then you can kind of make that, that translation. Well, so. you won't to know the connections to the literature if you don't know about your faith and what it, what it means and what it is. So Yeah. And if you're going to set yourself up like that and say, hey, you love Lord of the Rings? Well, then you, did you know Lord of the Rings is a Christian story? No, I didn't. Oh, well, it's an unconsciously Christian story. Okay. So I sound like an auctioneer now, but I don't mean to. But if you're going <laughs> to go that route and then somebody's like really explain yeah. that to me and you can't like, yeah <laughs> i don't know i just my apologist friend told me to tell me to tell, tell you this that's not going to be a good witness so um, um yeah go ahead that's, no, that's just, yeah i and i know um we won't talk about it today really but um i know in the future podcasts you're interested in diving into other literature besides lord of the rings too because yes. i know i'm yes there are tons of fans of Lord of the Rings, oh, but yeah. I think you're, like, you know, if you do what Peter Kreft says and, and, and ask someone, do you love Lord of the Rings? And what happens if they're like, nope, or, you know, yeah. no, I have no interest in reading it. I think sometimes people are really turned off by the fantasy genre, as, as you would say, I'm not a big fan of fantasy. I wouldn't read that. So, I've, but I think inherently we all are really drawn to what it is if we actually just took the time to, to read the literature that's there. Um, I think a lot of people are, intimidated by certain works of fiction or maybe um just have heard things and think oh that's not for me um but then once they got into it would realize oh actually so i know that there's other um you know literature that you want to talk on too in the future yeah. so, um that what i guess would help be a, a path into letting people see you actually do love these things that you might think you don't yes and let's say something on this real quick before we transition is that one of the things I do in my book, and I spend a lot of time in, in the introduction um, building up to this, and then I talk less about it in the rest of the book because it's not relevant, but trying to reteach people not only about this relationship between myth and Christianity and why it's so important and myth in all religions, i.e. worldviews, but to show that the Christian myth, as Dr. Marcos has recently shown in his book with Greco-Roman stories, but to expand that to all stories, to show how Christianity um, is the myth became fact, to show that it is the myth made fact, to show that it is the myth that makes sense of other myths, that tells a better story, and also has a place in its story for all the other story people have told. This is what Tolkien says in uh, the On Fairy Stories essay. He says, the Gospels contain a fairy story, perhaps the greatest. 
um, and uh, that contain the essence of all fairy stories. And this is exactly what Lewis says in different words in his myth became fact, 1940 something essay. Uh, I think it was in the forties when he wrote it, which was 10 plus years after that famous talk they had in 1931 that brought Lewis to go from theism to Christianity. Most people don't know that Lewis went from early Christianity in Ireland to uh, atheism, to theism, and then to Christianity. And showing um, what does this have to do with the Lord of the Rings, that Lord of the Rings also contains other elements from other myths and i.e. I, I, religions or worldviews that um, if you find them there, well, good. That doesn't contradict the fact that it's Christian. It makes it more Christian. It makes it, as Dr. Marco said in the interview last week, not uh, less than Balder, more than Balder. Right? We have Balder in there, but Christ is more than Balder. So it, it lifts up Balder and completes the Balder myth and the Anglo-Saxon elements and the, the Finnish elements in there that I'm not familiar with, but other experts are, the Greco-Roman elements, all of them that are in there, people always point to the Lord of the Rings and they say, oh, well, that's that contradicts that it's Christian. Yeah, if your understanding of Christianity is all or nothing, that either all truth and beauty and goodness is in Christianity or it's not, well, that's a misunderstanding of, of, of truth. It's a misunderstanding of Christian theology also. Well, yeah, that will be your conclusion. Mm -hmm. So if you read the introduction of my book, I talk about this and I correct a lot of these misperceptions. So good, bring on the, you know, yeah, I see other elements of other myths in there. You're supposed to, mm -hmm. just like you're supposed to, because Tolkien wanted it to match the same real world activity that as a Christian, if you're really paying attention, you see and detect hints of Christ and other myths. Now there's the question, of course, well, why don't we detect, you know, hints of Buddha? Why does it have to be Christ? Well, we talked about this in the last week's interview, so I'd encourage you to watch that. Maybe we'll do another episode with that, but that's an interesting objection and a good one, but I think I've made my point. Yeah. So, yeah. So from here, I don't know uh, where you want to go. Well, uh, I guess I, I kind of want to go back to your book the in the actual um preface preface and there's a, lot, a couple questions i think that um you know you address in your other podcast um mm -hmm. and other ones that you've been on interviews you've been on so i want to encourage people to go and listen to the other um podcasts you've been on but i wanted to pull out a quote that was from your preface uh the very first page actually mm -hmm. um just to ask you a little more about it so um what you said was Although it has taken several years for me to discover this, the Lord of the Rings restored my ability to read scripture properly and hear it for what it is. Good news. The Lord of the Rings re-mythologized and re-enchanted the biblical narrative for me when I needed it the most. So can you elaborate a little bit on how did it do that? How did it help you read scripture properly? Yeah, well, C.S. Lewis said in his um, his book, Miracles, which was a response to naturalistic philosophy in, in, in his time period, and I think it was in response to uh, uh, a scientist, female scientist at the time that was very outspoken about it. He said, you know, the people who really understand nature best are those that get away from her, you know, that you, you understand from the supernatural perspective. So we need to go a little away from her to see her more clearly. And this is the same principle and this gets us into indirect communication and myth, right? Which myth is indirect communication. It's not direct communication, it's indirect communication. Well, in that same kind of sense, um, you have to sometimes go away from scripture in order to understand it. But this is why it's so important that, that Christians understand that it isn't all or nothing. Everything outside of Christianity is darkness and satanic and everything inside it is light. No, that's not how God made things. The full fullness of truth and light and goodness and beauty, yes, is found in Christ and in scripture, which are our touchstones in that order. Christ and then scripture, I think, is most importantly. 
and Christ says scripture testifies to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, not the other way around. However, it works that way too. But the important thing here to I think keep in mind is um, that sometimes we need to really get away from things in order to understand things best. And in fact, what you know Jesus did on the road to Emmaus is he said, go back to the story you know well in the Torah and look for me there, right? And so you, you know the Torah. I mean, these were two Jewish people. They knew the, the scriptures very well, but he said, go back. And they might've said to him, why should we go back? We know the story of Moses. Why do we need to read it again? But Jesus in Luke 24, he says, well, you're going to find me there. You're going to find me in the prophets. You're going to find me in the writings. So um, my comment on this is that like what Lewis said, you know, I needed to get away from it. And so in that time between 2001 and 2010, as I was kind of just a baby Christian kind of steering, just gathering data, gathering information, trying to reorder it, you can have a bunch of information, but not know how to arrange it. And that was kind of, um, I guess, what I learned later, looking back on that time period, what had happened. And so um, th that's what I meant by, although it has taken several years, and uh, I would only be able to know that retrospectively that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing reading scripture and that this book, um, how did it do that through the image of the exiled and returning king? It was the thing that haunted me the first time I read the book. Something about it resonated with me. It resonates with so many people. I know of one book that has done uh, some scientific research on this where they've done brain scans on people watching that scene from the films and reading that part of the book. There's something that it just lights up certain parts of the brain. There's something powerful about this image, this, this type. And uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I knew the power of, of that mythic symbol, that image of, of Aragorn and, um, and the uh, kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor and the Dúnedain and the Numenorians and all that whole story. And those nerds out there will get all these terms that relate to Aragorn's people um, that I talk about in the book. And, and then seeing at the end when he's coronated and the eagle soaring over Minas Tirith saying, your king is returning to you and he will be with you all the days of your life. And I read that and it stuck with me and it stuck with me. And then over the years, I finally said, well, this language sounds like it's in the Bible. And then I met an author, N.T. Wright, who put the gospel in those terms. And then it all clicked. Mm -hmm. This is the same story, but it's not the same story, of course, because Tolkien's story is unique, but but the same contours of the myth are there. Right. And, um, and, and that's what re-enchanted me. And then I came back to the Bible, to scripture with a whole new appreciation of it. Mm -hmm. And then I also knew how to read it better because I understood more about myth. I understood about its relationship to worldview and the incarnation and how we should be modeling um, a very incarnational approach to our apologetics. It's not just logos based, but mythologos, that it's also mythically driven. And uh, I think that's, that's how it did it. And I think that's very encouraging for a lot of Christians. I know you mentioned that, you know, there's so many Christians that think you have to run completely away from everything that's not within directly within Christianity. So you can only read the Bible. You hear anything else, you know, you, you, and, and you, I, I read the Bible because that's what I was brought up to do and, and not understanding it, but then, but it's reassuring to know reading these stories and, 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 watching films or things that um, stir up an understanding of scripture that you never had, being able to go back in and now read the scripture and go, oh, and now I understand this or a story that Jesus shared. Now that makes more sense because of something that that I've watched or in the fact that um, people can be brought closer to God through stories that are written by humans, you know, is um, yes. very encouraging. It is. Um, and I'm glad you find it to be so. 
I do. Thank you. Um, so I know too, because I don't know how much more time we have. Probably not too much. Yeah, we're, we're just under an hour, so we can go for a little while longer. Usually, yeah. do a little bit if you can do yeah. it. All right. Well, um, just you've you've talked about in your preface and on some of the other interviews that um, these next two questions I have kind of go hand in hand because you've talked about what inspired you to write this book, um, but on the same on the same hand is that what sets your part your book. What sets your book apart from others on the subject of Tolkien's works and Christianity? Because there are other works. I know there are several Tolkien fans who absolutely loathe when there's any mention of Christianity or Christian themes. They want that to be completely separate. And then there are works about Tolkien and Christianity. And so what makes your book different from those works that are on Tolkien um, and Christianity? Well, I think, great, great question, honey. I think that the Tolkien scholars that do this, whether they're secular or religious or, or, or somewhere uh, searching and seeking still, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, of course, but setting that aside, I think the reason they say this is because they love Tolkien and they know what he said about allegory and they know what he said about allegory and Arthurian myth and Christian myth. And I know that that it it is also, I think, sadly, because they're not properly um, trained on a real ancient understanding of myth. But I also think more importantly, as Heiser said in our interview, Dr. Michael Heiser said, I think not only do they need a little mythic education, but they need to go back to read their scripture again through ancient Israelite eyes and need a crash course on real Christian theology, robust historical Orthodox Christian theology. And like we were talking earlier about the all or nothing truth thing, it's stuff like that. And I think they're thinking, well, there's Finnish mythology and uh, other Scandi or Scandinavian mythology, because I think Finland's kind of technically outside of Scandinavia, if I'm not mistaken. You have Greco-Roman mythology and Anglo-Saxon mythology that's in the books, and you can't say it's Christian. And so they are up in arms about it because they don't understand the myth-made fact sort of um, argument. But I think also it's because this term allegory is so loaded and they're, they're not familiar with some of the, the great scholars I consulted for my book that um, some of them are writing from a Christian perspective, some of them are not, that really go deep on these the terms, parable, allegory, and have really thought long and hard about it and all the ink that's been spilled about it. And I think that people just aren't digging deep enough and getting a, um, a more nuanced understanding. And so they're just writing it off. Uh, oh, it's just another that kind of allegory that Tolkien disliked. But of course, I present solid evidence from Tolkien's own mouth um, and revisions of things that I think people have misunderstood, which is my take on what he said, that show, and this is what makes my book unique, that we don't need to fear anything from, from allegory because there's only one type of allegory that we do need to be afraid of because it reduces the story to something Tolkien would not want it to be. And it also reduces the Christianness in the story and reduces Christianity to something that is unrecognizable. And I think that's what he feared. He didn't fear allegory in general, but one kind of allegory. Um, and so, and then the difference between allegory as a composition and allegorical language I get into. So I think there's just a lot. And that's what people need to be patient when they're reading my book, especially the introduction in chapter one. It's long, it needs to be, because there's so much, you're just not aware until you look at my bibliography so much uh there has been so much contention over this issue and i really try to put it to rest and one of the things my first publisher before i had to switch publishers uh really i think appreciated what they told me is that i addressed that in a satisfactory way and as i did more and more research on that i realized it was going in more of a new testament parable direction 
than that first publisher would have liked. But uh, thank, thankfully for Whipfinstock, we found a good home for the book. So I think that's what really makes it unique, but then also how we can respect the story, whatever we call it in the end, as a story and, and that it's not just a carbon copy of what's in the Bible. Uh, otherwise it wouldn't teach us anything new about the Bible. And so your previous question about how the Lord of the Rings did this to me would be invalid. Um, I think that's something we need to really dig deeper on. And so I hope my book will do that for people and kind of show you what the big fuss is about these terms and and why they're so loaded. You know, right. it, it is complicated. I can't apologize for that. It's, that's the way it is. But I think it's necessary for us to engage in that critical thinking to truly understand the terms so we don't just write them off. And I, I want to encourage listeners to, um, if they haven't listened to your Michael Heiser podcast yet on the Naked Bible podcast, that you you really dive deep into the, the whole spectrum of allegory that you talk about in your book that you've kind of seen the conscious intentional allegory on one end and then the parable fairy story on another. And I think that um, you, if you really want to get a good, a good idea of, of those terms to listen to that podcast for sure. And, and thank you, sweetie. Um, I think also what's important two things is to, to point out that I know that, again, a lot of scholars are going to hear that and say, oh, how could you wait until you see my argument first and, and realize that I may not be using these terms the way that you think I am. That's the first thing. And so I really think the, the cautious and judicious scholars uh, among academia will, and laypersons will be thoughtful and say, let me give this a chance. Because I can tell you there have been far less thoughtful books written on Tolkien and religion as, as uh, Dr. Hordway, Dr. Ordway just recently pointed out in a talk she and I did with uh, Justin Brierley, um, you know, that there are a lot of books out there that really just cheapen it and say, oh, this equals that. And so she's absolutely right. So give it a chance. Yeah. But um, there was another thing I was going to say about this, um, and it kind of slipped my mind, but it, it'll come back, um, I'm sure, in due time. But I think it's important that we give it a chance and that realize that I might be saying parable and fairy story may not be the way that you think that I'm referring to it, but that other point is gone. So we'll see if we can find it. Yeah, so but but give your book a chance, you know, don't don't judge a book by its cover, although your cover is a very awesome cover. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. if we're just judging on the cover Kelly Sims and uh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know we'll talk in, or you'll talk in future podcasts or maybe have me on again. We can talk more about, you, you mentioned earlier about the more of the practical aspects of how Lord of the Rings can be an apologetic for Christianity. So yeah, we'll talk more into that later, but I just, to wrap it up for, at least for, for me to let, wrap it up, um, what kind of content can listeners expect to hear on your podcast in the future? So to help them want to stay tuned in or any last thoughts that you want to leave your listeners with tonight. Yeah. I really um, wish that I remembered that point I was trying to make. It was a um, really important one too, because uh, you know, it's not just that I, I don't want readers to, to write this off, but to understand that um, it's very, it was very important to Tolkien, what we, what we, how we understand how the story works on us, not so much what we ultimately call it, but, oh, I remember now it, it's uh, one of my, my great platforms that I, uh, and, and shoulders and I'm standing on a, a great scholar and, and, and also a uh, Jesuit uh, priest that knew Tolkien was a friend of Tolkien and the family starting in the 1940s. That was a confidant for Tolkien in, in uh, parts of the Lord of the Rings that he discussed with him. And many of the letters the only collection of letters we have about Tolkien uh, are addressed to Sir, uh, Sir, excuse me, Father Robert Murray, um, who's part of the Society of Jesus, the, the Jesuits and the Catholic Church. 
Um, and uh, Murray in 1992 for the Tolkien centenary for his 100th uh, celebration of his 100 years after his birth in 1892, I have the book up here. Um, it's an essay in part of uh, part of the, the Tolkien, a celebration compendium of essays that celebrate that event, that centenary. And uh, what's really important just in the title alone is that it's called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. And the connections he makes there between parable and fairy story should be explored uh, further, I said. And that's why I wrote the book. You know, it, for many of the other reasons that I've said is that I wanted to take this, this person that was so close to Tolkien and saw this before me or anybody else obviously did. And I wanted to try to explore that in more detail using contemporary research on allegory and parable and, and great scholarship on Tolkien to get a, a closer look at uh, what Murray seems like he, he didn't finish or didn't pick up again in his mm -hmm. lifetime. But it's an excellent little essay and I wish he had pressed it further, but I'm also glad that he didn't in a sense because I, I can hopefully contribute in my humble way. So, um, but that itself should kind of say, give it a chance because it, it, it's something that you might as well call it Tolkien and the art of the allegory because that's what a lot of people think parable is and so they'll write it off anyway uh for the podcast mythic mission uh, so sarah um i hope you'll come on again and do this with me this was fun i know we have to kind of put on personas and and pretend like we uh we're very professional so i let setting that aside uh what i'd like to get you excited about is the the many uh topics that i'd like to explore in the near future first of all um, most importantly, I'm going to be having some really stellar guests on the show. Uh, Dr. Charlie Starr is coming on to talk about C.S. Lewis and myth and many other things, um, including a lost screw tape letter, uh, which is uh, great. Uh, we'll talk about that next week on the 24th of January with him. Uh, yeah, it'll be audio and video, so we'll have both versions. Uh, I know I have, um, I, I think, um, hopefully, to look forward to uh, Mary Jo Sharp and her husband, Roger Sharp, um, if all things work out there. I know she's recovering from COVID, so prayers for, for her. Um, hopefully that'll be a guest that will come on. Um, Dr. Bradley Berzer, who's written a great book on uh, Tolkien. It's called J.R.R. Tolkien's Sanctifying Myth, one of the books that I relied on doing research for my book and a really great Catholic perspective, which Tolkien was a Catholic, so that's very important. He's probably going to be coming on um, maybe later in February, March. So that's a little ways off. Uh, I think he's also working on a review for my book. I don't know if that's something uh, to expect sooner or later, but that's great news. Uh, good news. Uh, of course, um, we had Dr. Lewis Marcos on last week, who also wrote a, re a review of my book, the, the first and, and um, uh, I'm sorry, not the first review, but the, the most complete review, I think, um, that's out there on Reformation 21, which is a website that uh, you can find easily. Um, and you can also click to follow our WordPress here on the blog to, uh, to get access to that review, which is on my website. Um, he's probably going to come on again, in all honesty. I think he was excited to, to maybe do something in the future, so that should be good. And that's the lineup so far, so that's something to look forward to. That's a lot of great guests. But aside from that, I'm going to be delving into some of the non-Christian myths that I think uh, are important that we learn how to understand how they're telling their stories in contrast to how the Christian story. So we'll give it through a Christian uh, perspective at some point in these walkthroughs I'll be doing, but we're also gonna be doing deep dives from the point of view of other myths like uh, the Witcher books by uh, Andrzej Sapowski, Sapowski, excuse me, Andrzej Sapowski, who is the author, a Polish author of those books, who uh, whose universe has been described as very existentialist and uh, 
therefore Sartrean kind of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus um, and also the uh, the Nietzschean blues. I saw an article on, online recently that delves into the, the works of Nietzsche and the Witcher universe. So that should kind of give you a, a taste of what to expect there. Um, we're going to do the Chronicles of Narnia. We're going to do Harry Potter. Uh, I've got a great series of books that I don't know if anybody is, I'm, I know people have heard of them, but I, I don't hear people talking about them enough. And that's a shame. The Imaginarium Geographica series by James A. Owens, which is a great set of seven or eight books um, that are bundled together and actually features fictional young versions of Jack, C.S. Lewis, his nickname, and Tollers, um, or, you know, John, John J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, along with Hugo Dyson and some other people you recognize. So it's a really fun kind of young adult book series, but uh, it's really a great read. And I know I've got some others, I just can't think of them off the top of my head that I'm going to do. Um, problem is I've got kind of books on one device and on another, but those are some, some things just to look forward to in the near future. I know also, oh, um, uh, superheroes will be doing something on Marvel and even I wanted to mention that earlier and I forgot but yeah I would love for us to do one on um, superheroes and, and yes. Marvel something I did want to talk about definitely something we could do in the Which future. I think you would love to do and yeah. uh, and I know um, you're not as much of a, a gamer as I am but uh, you can you can get up there sometimes but the Legend of Zelda series I just got a book recently that walks through some salient philosophical reflections on those series of games which are very beloved for a lot of people who grew up with that series. So video games, literature, especially literature, um, and some movies too, or, you know, like with Marvel, you've got, I mean, you've got everything, but you've got movies and you've got, um, you've got literature, obviously comics, which I'm not an expert on, but uh, you know, you've got some of the, the things we can kind of do crossovers there. So there's lots of fun um, topics on the horizon. Uh, if you're looking to make suggestions, I'd always love to hear them. Sarah and I would love to, to entertain them and, see if we can make it doable. So uh, in addition to that, I'll be doing um, some brief dives into parts of my book, but also, of course, we'll be featuring a lot of Middle Earth podcast episodes, things that I couldn't talk about as much in my book, uh, or uh, aspects of my book, little parts, not, not big swaths of conversations, but little parts where we can take a little closer look at some things without, you know, space uh, limitations. Writing a book, I always had to be concise in certain areas. I know people are thinking, they look at the book, oh my God, that's concise. Well, yeah, for this subject, but, um, you know, at least we'll be a little freer to talk in the podcast about some things. So uh, obviously Middle Earth related stuff. Um, yeah, you know, that was me trying to be concise. That is years and years and years of, of research and reflection on some really complicated topics, um, especially that allegory business was a nightmare. So yeah. Uh, you're welcome. Um, so <laughs> Middle Earth stuff, definitely look forward to. I just, I, I haven't even taken a step back to, to think about what we should really talk about there. There's just so much, uh, but a good start would be places in my book. So we'll do that. Which anyway. the last thing I just want to say is um, maybe in the YouTube, when the YouTube video, you can put a link to your book on Amazon. Um, yes. And for whip and stock, but just I don't have the actual physical copy in front of me, but I have the the on my iPad. There yeah. it is. Yeah. Although you can't read it very well, can yeah. you? Yeah. Good news of the return of the yeah. king, gospel. In the There's the cover. The good news of the return of the king, the gospel in Middle Earth. So if you haven't bought it yet, it's on Amazon and whipandstock.com, and it's on Kindle for only nine ninety nine. Yep. 
And if you have a Kobo or yeah, it's really affordable, or if you have any other e-reader, it's on virtually everywhere fine books are sold. I found it on the uh, Kobo site. It's on Amazon, which is the most popular one. It's on Whip and Stocks website. And Sarah, you uh, helped me put, um, there's a link. If you go to my, our YouTube page, there is a, um, I, I got to figure out how to put this into Anchor or iTunes. So if you're listening on the podcast, yeah. the best way to do this is to look for me on Facebook um, or to, um, there it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to find out how we'll get it for our podcast listeners. I'll try to see in maybe the episode description or in the podcast description to put a link for my website. Yeah. Uh, where if you go to my website, which is a WordPress site, there are links to YouTube, book reviews, interviews, podcasts, um, links to my book, etc. Just everything is bundled there. Uh, but there, if you're on YouTube, there are little icons on the about section of the YouTube page, which can take you to all of these places as well, including my website. Um, so please subscribe, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, et cetera, yada, yada. So um, there was just a, a couple of the things that I wanted to say that I'm not going to be able to say tonight, but uh, we want to really talk a little bit more about myth as indirect communication. Um, and I just want to finish uh, with a testimony, if I could, Sarah, um, from one of uh, Tolkien's uh, readers in the mid 20th century who wrote him. Uh, and kind of sets this up for our talk next time. Maybe we'll do a podcast on that. Uh, this was an unbelieving man. It's letter 328 in the uh, collection of letters edited by Humphrey Carpenter, the only collection we have of Tolkien's letters. And he writes to Tolkien, uh, he says, you create a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere without a visible source, like light from an invisible lamp. And these words, you got to really unpack them. They're, they're just so profound. Tolkien thought so. And he then comments that, the other author, God, took over and wrote the book. This wasn't him in his very understated, modest, and, and humble way. And I mean that with the greatest respect for Tolkien. He was always deferring his book and his writing to the authorship of God and the Holy Spirit, which is just wonderful. But what's profound about this, not only Tolkien's response, but that this is a testimony to a lot of things, but it's a testimony to the power that myth has as indirect communication, that we... Um, sometimes benefit more from a, a narrative approach that enfolds and conceals a propositional message, an argument, if you will, or evidence that, you know, you could otherwise deliver straightforwardly. Sometimes it's best to do that by sneaking around the watchful dragons of our rational mind and going through the imagination. This is the indirect approach. It's literally what the word parabolane means. It can mean thrown from the side unexpectedly. It's indirect. And this is so powerful. And it's clear that this, this gentleman um, knew that there was some sense of, of power with a capital P, right, in Middle Earth, uh, not Sauron or, or Aragorn or the Valar or Iluvatar. Um, I'm not sure if he had read uh, at that point, he couldn't have read the Silmarillion, but he, he detected something, right? It was outside the story that yeah. pervaded and shined into the story. So I think it's just very powerful. Um, so maybe we'll do a indirect communication and myth thing in the yeah. future. I would love that. <laughs> I would love it too. You did an awesome job. And um, my favorite guest to have on the show is Sarah. So that's great. <laughs> and um, also for everybody to see that she has something, uh, more than something to contribute. And hopefully she'll be doing some of these walkthroughs of literature, especially the Harry Potter stuff. And you know what? You should maybe think of doing something on the Hunger Games if you want to uh, look at that, because that would be another great series. I'd love to hear kind of a breakdown of. So if you ever wanted to get back into those, that would be cool. That would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I would 
So um, anyway, we're open to ideas from you. So let us know. And thanks, honey, for doing this with me. I hope everybody enjoyed it. So too. Thanks for having me on. Okay. We'll see you next time on Mythic Mission. This is Professor Michael Jahosky and Sarah Jahosky signing out. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs>